Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. Now, today's guest has traveled extensively around the world and was inspired by those experiences in the shape of his writing. Nicholas Obregon is a British-Spanish dual national who grew up between London and Madrid. With a varied background, he has worked as a steward at sports stadiums, an editor in legal publishing, and as a travel writer. Nicholas fell in love with Japan while on assignment for a magazine, and Blue Like Yokohama is his first novel. He currently lives in Los Angeles. So, Nicholas, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Now, I'm really interested in all of your travels. You wrote for a travel magazine before becoming a novice, novelist. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's, um, it, I think um, with travel writing, I, I completely fell into that by accident. I was basically working as an intern um, at the magazine itself, and there were a whole bunch of magazines within this one kind of umbrella corporation. And I happened to be singing to myself in Spanish whilst I was making a coffee, and the editor of the travel magazine walked in. She said, oh, you speak Spanish as well. So I said, yeah. And then she said, well, you should apply to um, do a secondment for the travel side of the magazine. So I did that, and then I luckily got in and then worked my way up. And, and, and that's kind of what led me to um, being sent to, to, to Japan, which kind of snowballed into me being a novelist today. But travel writing um, 100% kind of um, paved the way for the way I feel about setting and, and a sense of place, which, I mean, I, I guess we'll get onto that, but for me, it's so crucial to telling a story. No, absolutely it is. And, you know, capturing the setting um, for a story is, I think, it's difficult, especially mm-hmm. in a place where, you know, people are not familiar with it. It's pretty easy mm-hmm. if you're writing about a hospital room or a hotel room mm-hmm. here in the States where everyone can maybe picture they've been there before, but... Mm-hmm. The streets, uh, you know, the streets at night in Japan or in Madrid or something like mm. that, where people haven't haven't traveled to or maybe aren't familiar with, that's a that's a huge challenge. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I think as well, especially like you mentioned, um, if you're in a far flung place um, and you're kind of looking left and right, you're swiveling around, and the, the choices you have to make, the kind of the process of elimination of thinking. You know, what really here captures the essence, captures the spirit of what I'm seeing? You know, what do I need to put on the page? Because if you were just to describe absolutely everything across all your senses, it would just be page after page of, you know, the sights, the smells, and um, that would come at the cost of um, the the narrative. And and that's whether it's a travel article or whether it's a a novel. Um, So I think particularly the hard thing is kind of um, losing you know, what you're, you're going to have on the page, you know, what you're not going to describe and making the choice of, okay, the smell of these, um, I don't know, spices that the, the lady's putting into her omelet, that has to go on the page, but the way she looks doesn't. Those are hard choices to trying to think, you know, what would the reader really need to know to, to be here with me on the other side of the world? Yeah, that's great. And I think it plays into, you know, um, the character's point of view and the voice of the writing. And also, Mm -hmm. as I've mentioned to people in writing seminars, details Mm -hmm. are not necessarily there to describe, but they're to evoke. And a lot of people over-describe what doesn't need to be described and (laughs) under-describe the very things that we need the most because we need to be, uh, we need that evocative writing. Absolutely. And I think um, that's a great point because uh, the, the feeling of, um, you know, evoking a sense of place or, or, or even a sense of character through the sights and the sounds, to me, I think it kind of has to all conspire together. So I'm not saying that if we're about to meet a villain, then there should be a crack of thunder and, you know, the sky should turn dark. <laughs> but, I, but, but I think you do need to have kind of um, atmospheric clues or, or at least... Um, if if those things aren't in sync, then they should kind of be contrasting. So if everybody else is laughing and having a wonderful time and the sun is out, then it should be evident that the person whose world has just fallen apart is sort of aside from that. So I think, yeah, it, the sense of evocation, the sense of uh, feeling to me is absolutely crucial, kind of more than the um, 
you know, every single little detail. I think the details that you do choose have to kind of sing to you, you know, they have to be doing something. Um, and I'm not sure if there's a rhyme or reason um, in what we find significance, but uh, yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah, I think that um, when you're talking about mood, it made me think of a common error that I sort of, I don't know if it's an error, but weakness that I see in a lot of the writing of aspiring authors where they'll start to describe the mood uh, maybe in a positive way. They'll have clouds dancing above the forest or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and then suddenly they'll insert a word that undermines that positive mood. Like right. they might say the fluffy clouds were lurking above the forest or so, something right, like that right, where right. you're like, wait, you have fluffy, now you have yeah. lurking. What am I supposed to be feeling here? Oh, <laughs> am I right, supposed yeah. to be terrified of the clouds or am I supposed to be happy and dancing with the clouds? And, yeah. and I feel like um, that dissonance can drive readers out of a story where – where once you have confluence between those verbs and adjectives to create that sense of mood and place that mm-hmm. you bring people present and, and hopefully you don't give them conflicting messages. Absolutely. And I think, um, I mean, I think it's a rare case where you can pick up a book. Um, maybe, you know, Nabokov is, is, is an exception, but it's a rare case where you can pick up a book and it's just kind of page after page of these, um, you know, kind of flowery words and and it's a very rare thing that that can be a turn on you know i think if if the word choices are standing out then the writer hasn't really done their job i kind of see it as um if you're gonna if you're gonna pull a magic trick and we're focusing on how loud and 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 kind of flashy the, the magician's suit is or his top hat then we're not looking at the magic trick and i think it's it's partly the job of the writer to not be um, present in the reader's world, you know, for them to be able to forget that you are a writer, that you are kind of a god in this universe, and that the story absolutely supersedes the writer. And I think the moment that you use, um, I'm not saying that word choice shouldn't be interesting, but the moment that you kind of leave something that stands out or drags the reader out of the, the, the world that you've created, you're kind of falling down. So yeah, like, lurking and fluffy in the same sentence that should definitely be something where when you reread as a writer thinking you know is this going to take the reader out of the forest or or the clouds that i'm putting on the page that's a a great point yeah no i like that um i like the idea that uh you know it isn't about eloquence it's about story Mm -hmm. um absolutely and certainly there will be like you just mentioned it's super important to have the right word choice um Mm -hmm. And, uh, and but you don't want to draw attention to that because as soon as you do, then people are distanced from the story and they're kind of like, oh, well, that was a clever use of dialogue or, right. oh, oh, he he knows how to use alliteration or something right. like that where exactly. that's exactly the opposite of what we want. Right. And I think it is kind of, yeah, your job as a writer to be absent within your story. Of course, it's something that kind of Writer's Room 101 or, or any kind of creative writing course um, you know, since I was a teenager, you would hear, you know, the writer needs to find their voice. You know, who are you? What, what, what's the story you're trying to tell? And, and of course, all of that, you know, is true. But at the same time, for me anyway, I feel like when I found my voice, it was realizing that that didn't need to be a set thing or another thing. It's, it's, it just happens to be your, your personality or the way you sound. And once you kind of let go of an idea of what that should be, what you're kind of left with is what you're putting on the page. And if you're voices shouting out from those sentences at the reader kind of from between the lines then um yeah as you say maybe it's going to distract from the world you're trying to build whereas if your uh, language your usage of language or your choice of words kind of fit naturally or balance naturally within the sentences then maybe the reader's going to go okay well this is just a writer who chooses elegant uh, language so that's fine but if you've got this kind of very staccato you know the man walked in he was tall and then in your third sentence all of a sudden you're using some grandiloquent word then that's <laughs> not going to jive with the kind of the promise you've made on 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 word one page one so um i think yeah the 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 tone that you take has to kind of feel consistent has to feel fair um, and as you say, if you're kind of putting jarring images in one sentence, especially because I think we have associations with words, like it would be very difficult to use the word luck without a negative connotation. Yeah, I think um, so too. So, yeah. 
Yeah, that's. Um, I love how you mentioned um, the promises that we make, and I think that mm-hmm. it's true that when we write, it's a lot of our stories are about promises and payoff, and that sure. the promises can be implied or mm-hmm. they can be stated outright. But I was looking at this one person's um, writing one time. She was at a writer's conference and gave it to me, mm-hmm. and I read the first couple of pages, and there was this chase scene, and suddenly this car smashed into a tree and exploded, and I said, wow, mm-hmm. so you've written an action novel. She said, no, it's a romance. Right, <laughs> right. I said, it's an explosive well, one. <laughs> I was in a romance. She said, well, she gets taken to the hospital and falls in love with the doctor. And I was like, right. well, you know, you kind of made a promise early yeah, on that's yeah. going to be this certain genre of story and mm-hmm. uh, and she said well my writing my writer's critique group told me i needed a better hook i had a different right. opening and um and i get i get that people want an exciting you know hook mm-hmm. but it's it needs to make you know promises that are congruent with where the story goes absolutely absolutely and i think as well the the advice that her group has given her there about creating the hook, um, as you say, you know, whilst it's a kind of a self-evident truth that it needs to be interesting, I think it also has to respect its genre. So if you are saying on page one that there's a dead body, then you're effectively telling the reader that at the end of this novel, we will know who has created the dead body and why, and they're probably going to get their comeuppance just by the fact that you've placed a, a dead body on, on page one. That's simply the, the, the tenets of the, the genre in which you're writing. And I think that is something which I used to hear all the time um, at university whilst doing creative writing there, that people would say, well, yeah, I, I want to write about detective, but, you know, I don't necessarily want to adhere to the rules of the genre. You know, I, I want to kind of do my own thing. And I think whilst that should obviously be commended, um, at the same time, you know, to go back to your point, you, you have made a promise to the reader, which is, I am telling you a story about a good guy or a bad guy or about somebody who falls in love or whatever it might be. Those things carry expectations. And if you defy the expectations, then you mention the word payoff. I think the payoff has to be, you know, really quite um, spectacular. Otherwise, there is going to be a sense of feeling cheated. Um, and you kind of want your audience on the side with you. Um, so I'm all for frustrating the reader, for scaring the reader, for, um, you know, maybe delaying payoff. But at, at, at some point, you can, you're going to have to kind of deliver on your promise. That's part of why people go to the movies or why they go and see a magic show or pick up a book is, you know, you're not just telling them, hey, there's an explosion on page one, but by page 10, there's just a love affair. And then, <laughs> you know, it, 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 I don't know. So, yeah, I think that's a really important point. And they, those genres are kind of there whether you like it or not. Um, I used to work in a bookstore, and at the end of the day, whilst I was tidying up, I saw that most of the work was in romance and crime fiction. That's where kind of my tidying had to be done. So I can say, hey, I'm not interested in following the rules of the crime genre, but the minute I use the word detective on page one, you're kind of bound to it whether you like it or not. So um, you might as well kind of embrace the the expectations and um, fulfill the reader expectations, I think. Yeah, and I think there is this delicate dance between not falling into using cliches but also Mm -hmm. respecting the conventions that readers come to that um, certain genre for. And... uh, Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to have a crime. Well, what's a cliche? Right. You know, we've seen, we've all seen or read the stories about the detective who, guess what? His marriage is in tatters. Why? Mm-hmm. Because he works too much and he mm-hmm. drinks too much. And we're right. like, oh, you know, it's been done a thousand times before. So how can we, how can we create, a, you know, a fresh, uh, um, a fresh character and respect mm-hmm. the conventions without? falling too far into cliches of what people have seen. Certainly, yeah, that, that's, absolutely, uh, that's absolutely the case. And I think especially, well, you use, you use the word there, fresh character, and I absolutely think that that's the, the, the answer to that question. I think too often, um, I, I often get sent books uh, to kind of go over and, and, and give a quote, and um, oftentimes I think people resort to novelty or, or to a kind of uh you know a kind of a gimmick um to to answer that question well in my case my detective he's actually hooked on i don't know sniffing glue so he's not an alcoholic, right, but he has right. this 
and I and I just think like novelty is fine, but I think if the if the driver of the tension is the fact that this guy is addicted to glue, then that addiction has to be done interestingly, and it has to be faithful to the reality of that world. But a kind of a more um, certainly to me anyway interesting way of doing it is by saying, okay, well maybe my detective, you know, maybe his marriage is in tatters, maybe he is an alcoholic, maybe he is all the cliches that this genre is kind of tired of. But I'm going to make him an interesting, flawed person, and I'm going to make him my own character. I'm going to make him unique inside of who he is. And I think if you're putting a character on the page who has feeling, who has pain, who has secrets, then all of those things can be as unique as people can be anyway. And then you're not relying on the conventions of the genre. You're relying on the person that you've created. Um, and I think that, so for example, my novel, does hit a lot of the kind of cliches. Um, but I think where I've tried to kind of go down a different path is to, is to try and mould a character who maybe isn't the kind of typical tough-talking, you know, tough guy cop who doesn't take any crap and he's kind yeah. of sleeping with loads of women and knocking down doors. He's not really like that. So I think the, the cliches can be there. They can all be on the page if you want, but so long as you're putting human beings in that world... And I think the reader's probably going to be more inclined to go along with you um, over, you know, like I say, gimmicks and novelties. Yeah, I was teaching at a writer's conference just last week, and um, mm -hmm. someone had asked me, how do you create that empathy between your character that you're writing and the readers? Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things I came up with as we were discussing it was you either give them a wound or a desire. Like right, the wound right. could be something that your characters have, if it's grief mm -hmm. or, you know, it's loss or whatever that we can identify with, or a desire we identify with to be free, mm -hmm. to be loved, to love, to find our place mm -hmm. in the world, acceptance and so on. I think that it seems, it seems like that approach really is it's kind of what you're talking about. For sure, and I think the the, the wound or the desire. I mean, that's. It, it, it's such an important thing, um, especially if, you know, particularly if you have someone there who's saying, how can I make the reader empathize with, with the person I want to put on the page? Well, you know, if you're walking down the street and you see a person who's fallen over, you know, 99 out of 100 people are going to stop and say, oh, my God, are you okay? It's just, it's, we're just kind of hardwired that way. Um, Whereas if they're just walking down the street and they're kind of, you know, maybe talking to themselves or shouting or something, most people are going to not want to get involved. You know, it's, 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 I, I think that if you have, um, if you have a wound, like you say, inside your character, again, that's, that's a very common thing that, you know, most detectives have, um, whether it's on TV or in novels, but if the wound itself is something that you actually want to explore, you actually want to write about. You know, it's not just something that you have in the kind of prologue, oh, and then he lost his kid when he was a younger detective. Right. And you never kind of really explore what that does to a person and how they deal with it. Then you kind of might as well not have it. You know, I think it's something where, for me anyway, one of the main reasons I wanted to write about my detective was the pain he had been through and the way he deals with it now. Yeah. Um, if you if you kind of don't want to get into the wound or the desire and you just kind of want this empty vehicle for doing detective stuff, then maybe the character's going to kind of feel hollow. So, yeah, that was I think that was really important advice that you gave her. I'm curious about, as you've traveled um, all throughout the world and writing and especially researching this book, Nicholas, have mm -hmm. you found that people have different, um, let's say, stories in different cultures? Do they tend to emphasize different things or or do you find sort of this, these universal themes or universal aspects of storytelling regardless of where you've gone in the world yeah that's a really good question um so i think the short answer is that um yeah for sure um the kind of the main arcs are are universal um i think in terms of the crime genre certainly where I've kind of focused most of <clears throat> my reading in the last sort of five years. Um, the way I began writing my first book was I had an idea for a novel, I wanted to write it, and I kind of, I'd always said to myself, I'm going to do this, but never got around to it. So that when I finally took the plunge, I said, okay, well, before I, I do this, 
I'm going to kind of arm myself um, with, with research. So I went out and kind of ended up reading something like two or 300 crime novels from, from all over the world, you know, Icelandic, Indian, Spanish, published, unpublished, good, bad, high genre, you know, kind of the whole kind of uh, panorama. Um, and then, of course, I'm fortunate enough to have done a bunch of traveling as well. Um, and I think that the kind of, yeah, of course, there are universal themes um, that you find uh, kind of throughout all of these um, books that I've picked up and, and throughout my travels. I think where there might be some cultural differences, that then trickles down into the market in which an author is writing and selling. Um, so, of course, one can never generalize. But, for example, I've read a lot of uh, Japanese crime fiction. Um, and certainly in the last kind of 10 to 20 years, um, there is a lot of, or, or I should say, there is um, a great popularity on crime fiction that is driven often by um, puzzles and logic. Hmm. So, for example, um, the devotion of suspect X, which did kind of really well in Japan and then was adapted throughout Asia uh, for movies and so on. Whilst you've got the kind of the domestic drama of a kind of um, a wife who's sort of fights back against her abusive husband and then it goes wrong and then the neighbor helps um, because he's devoted to her. Sooner or later, we, we, we get the genius figure who simply because of his great intellect and his love of mystery, he ends up being able to piece together um, or he ends up being able to solve the mystery. And it's kind of driven by this genius. Um, so I think, d depending on where you are, a puzzle um, and kind of uh, problem-solving um, can really kind of drive a market. Whereas I'm thinking of perhaps in Spain, where there is um, also a lot of superb crime fiction there. But often it will be driven by, um, or at least in, in what I've read, it will be driven by the characters themselves. So why does Manolo kill his best friend? Well, when they were 15, this thing happened and Manolo could never forgive him. So I think what's popular or what does well uh, can be a signifier of um, what each culture kind of um, is hungry for in, in, in any given year. But, but ultimately, yeah, the, the kind of the goods and the evils, I think so long as there are people, it kind of doesn't matter whether you bear East or West. Um, ultimately, the things where... Some people lie, some people don't, some people do good things, some people do bad things. Those are kind of always on, on, on the page. But part of what is wonderful about um, books is the fact that by picking up a, an Icelandic crime novel and then the next week reading an Indian crime novel, you know, you span thousands of miles and completely divergent cultures, but you can kind of see those differences. You can kind of pass out the things that separate Iceland and India but then also you can see the things where the threads run through them both. And I think that's just kind of part of the magic of, uh, of picking up a book. So, yeah, um, I, yeah I don't know if that answers your question in a very yeah, roundabout no, way. Yeah. I have, uh, I, this last um, week I spoke with a woman who had been a missionary in different parts of the world, and uh, she said that in certain parts of the world there's what she called the honor-shame culture. Mm -hmm. And like right, when she right. talked about America, she kind of talked about pride-guilt that in some cultures it seems like you know the fa the, the honor of your family or yourself mm -hmm. is really vital and then you know being shamed is 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 terrible or terrifying mm -hmm. or whatever mm -hmm. but that in america it isn't it isn't really thought of so much in in that way have you have you seen that at all it's interesting because i think um i mean particularly with the, with, with um well i mean at least in my experience in with Japanese culture, it, it's one of those things where in any kind of bad uh, movie or, or anything that's kind of riven with cliche, it will pick up Japanese um, with the kind of the, the, the signifiers of, you know, I must do this for honor and I must sacrifice myself for the greater good and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. I think um, certainly um, having lived in America now for the better part of two years, I mean, clearly... You know, it's a country driven by the individual where you, you know, the, the, the very premise of, of this country's founding is, is, is on, based on freedoms and individual freedoms. So it would be difficult kind of 300 years later to expect a society to be fun functioning around the collective good rather than the individual good. That simply wouldn't make sense. Whereas in Japan, it's kind of always been the opposite. 
Um, so, for example, I mean, I don't know. I'm trying to sort of think of uh, basic examples. So I remember the first time I went years ago, um, if you walk into, I don't know, a McDonald's and you look down the kitchen, you can see the 18, 19-year-old kid who's, who's making the, the burgers. You know, he's choosing the best tomato to put on, on, on the bun, and he's going to discard two or three before he picks up the, the, the best one and puts it down. And at the end of the day, you get talking to him, he's going to have no embarrassment whatsoever at saying he works in, in McDonald's because he's kind of, he, he's part of the circle, he's doing a thing. Whereas in, you know, London where I'm from, or where I grew up, it's just a job, you just work in McDonald's, maybe you're not going to be too excited to tell people at a bar, yeah, I work in McDonald's, because it's just a living, and you're going to make the burger as quickly as possible. So I think, for sure, the 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 personal accountability does depend on, on where you are and whether we call that honor or whether we call that a kind of, um, yeah, an honor system, I'm not sure. I think, though, that definitely the way that you are perceived um, and, and how much relevance you put on the way you're perceived can shift from, from place to place. I mean, certainly growing up in the UK, if you did a crime, right, your parents wouldn't be expected to foot the bill. They, you know, people wouldn't automatically say, oh, well, he must have had bad parents. Hmm. That's not the automatic thinking. Um, whereas, I mean, you know, you can pick up any kind of true crime book uh, based in Japan. And if a guy goes out and commits a bunch of crimes, it's not uncommon for the parents to be on television asking for forgiveness. Um, uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, of course, the honor is, is, is an important thing. I think ultimately it's, in Japan anyway, we're talking about a society where the pressures that exist here or in the UK or anywhere else are present there, but they're also driven by the fact that um, society has changed a massive amount in the last sort of 20 to 30 years. So whereas before there used to be jobs for life, um, uh, you know, people had set expectations in society. Well, now those jobs for life don't exist so much. And now the economy has been stagnant for, for quite a while. So... Yeah, I think in a shifting world, these kind of older notions of um, honour are still very much present in some places. But it's kind of also part of the um, it's kind of also part of the, the the charm as well. That despite there being it walking and talking like a duck, you know, you walk around Japan and every all the signage is in English for the most part. And most people under the age of forty will be able to have a basic conversation with you in English, and you'd certainly be able to get by. The flip side is that there are still cultural markers that are 3,000 years old that's still alive and present. So whilst they have a constitution and whilst they have most of the same kind of societal um, freedoms that you have in this country, it's also got a kind of 3,000-year history behind it, which is from a completely different place. So, so all those things fascinate me, the kind of, you know, crossing this land border and all of a sudden these are the rules. Those things um, absolutely fascinate me. So, yeah. Now, when you're, um, you mentioned earlier about finding your voice, and I find it really fascinating to hear that you read and researched and just immersed yourself in this genre of writing from from people all over the world. Um, and I was I was going to ask, you know, how you found your voice. Maybe it was through reading those. Do you think it mainly came from research or from actually trial and error as you were working on your novel? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think maybe, I mean, you as a really experienced writer, I mean, it's, it's something where I guess this is my first novel. So before I kind of even decided to write the thing, there is that kind of monkey on your shoulder saying, you know, who are you? You, you really think you can do this? You know, who's going to want to read what you put down on the page? It's on all so of our shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> it never goes that's, away. It never goes away, right? Right. Well, that's good to hear because I'm, I'm kind of starting out on my third one, and <laughs> I would think, okay, this monkey needs to go. But um, but but I think the the where you you find it, I think it's probably kind of a little of column A and a little of column B in the sense that reading other books and a lot of other books in this same kind of genre um, is a great way for you to kind of at once intimidate yourself and at once reassure yourself. You know, you pick up a terrible novel and you think, hey, well, this guy got published. You know, this guy does this for a living. Well, I can definitely do this. And then you pick up a piece of art and you think, well, this is a place I could never go to. <laughs> and I think that's kind of, 
the 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 pro it's, for me it was kind of a process of elimination so by doing the research by kind of arming yourself with the facts by getting to know the people that you want to put on the page and what drives them you know kind of putting bricks in place that helps you to um kind of work out what you're not about so for me that was a kind of realization finding my voice wasn't so much suddenly you know being able to sing in this perfect pitch it was kind of realizing hey well i'm not about this and i'm not about that and i think reading a great deal in the genre in which you want to write will help you kind of deduct um and through that process of deduction kind of find out where what you're left with and i think it's finding your voice is as much about um letting go of um fears and, and preconceptions as um as much as it is about kind of grasping the nettle and telling yourself i am a writer if you think about committing something to the page on a regular basis if you do commit something to the page on a regular basis then you are a writer and i can completely understand why somebody i don't know in a bar wouldn't say yeah i'm a writer if they've never published anything before but ultimately the, the reality is, is if this drives you or moves you in any way then you should probably kind of um confront it because it is one of those things where once you put chapters on the page and in amongst them you can kind of see this kind of i don't know phantasm kind of pushing them forward and you kind of realize hey that's my voice it is this wonderful kind of feeling where um i guess you can only kind of liken it to where people wake up one day and they realize that they're suddenly um i don't know an evangelical christian or something where where this thing just makes sense to you overnight and and i think that i'm not sure what it is that uh, drives you to that moment but i think it yeah a combination probably of trial and error absolutely by getting rid of the stuff that doesn't work for you by reading other people good good and bad i would say and um by kind of just taking the plunge um and and facing the fact that by existing right but your writing by existing will be criticized you know by being out there people will not like it that there will be no absolute response that there is no absolute truth and those things once you kind of let go on them you're kind of replaced with this kind of serenity where you think well I, you know my words are on the page that's my voice singing out at the reader whether it's good or bad at, at least i've done it and it's it's just such a a piece within it so yeah if anybody's listening who's thinking about writing but they're not quite sure 100% um i would say do it and and it will change your life you know um uh, I, was, uh, i heard that emily dickinson the american poet had seven only seven poems published in her lifetime and right. every one of them was altered by an editor right and yeah. uh and so you know you think well was she a poet well he, clearly she was a poet she mm. wrote how hundreds thousands of poems but almost nobody read them in her lifetime and mm-hmm. van gogh sold one painting in his lifetime right. and that was to his brother and yet was right. he a painter so it's so you know it's so common in our culture to to me people who would you know say oh i'm not a writer or i'm not an artist mm-hmm. or something because i haven't been published here or there right stuff like that but but i think you bring out a good point that you know it's pursuing that dream and when you find that the story is taking shape inside of you or on the page in front of you that that um you you know you're you're a writer and mm-hmm. um i remember when i went to my first um writing retreat there was this magazine that i wrote for and the um the editor was there to critique our work and so on and there was about eight of us they flew into this bed and breakfast and so mm-hmm. he said well what do you do when you're not writing and i was like well i'm just i do this and that and i was and mm-hmm. he says but you're a writer and i was like no i'm not a writer i'm just i do <laughs> this and that and he goes no you're a writer mm-hmm. and i was like i'm a writer <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so it was giving myself the opportunity and courage to actually embrace that part of myself mm-hmm. and say you know what I'm a writer and I can't control how many people read my books or don't but I can control the quality of the story I tell and Absolutely. that's where I'm going to focus focus my attention and 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 nobody gives you permission right like nobody knocks on your door and says hey you should write off you go so by having you know like by having fortunate experiences like in my case you know when i was kind of 23 my old editor walking in saying hey you should apply for this 
which then led to me kind of writing for a living or or in your case that gentleman saying to you no no you are a writer those little positive touches um those kind of little micro encouragements or macro depending they really can kind of um you know kind of build an entire empire by just kind of taking that first step and i think so i do um mentoring in uh, youth incarceration in la county and so a lot of these i mean they're they're all under 18 and a lot of these kids who are in these um complexes and these facilities often when you talk to them they will say well you know i'm interested in in comic books or i'm interested in music or i'm interested in writing or poetry or whatever it might be but you know my dad has told me that um later on down the line there's no life in that there's no job in that there's no career in that yeah um and it's just such a sad thing that you can be talking to a 15 year old who's telling you i want to do a thing but i've already been told there's there's no point and it's my father who has you know when a thing is burning they tell you don't touch it it's hot you know, they say, don't step there, there's glass. You know, these people are, are raising you and you absolutely trust them because, you know, that's the way we work. But then they're telling you, don't follow your dream because if you follow your dream, it leads to disappointment. And it's, it's just such a sad thing that those kind of micro encouragements that I was talking about before, if you, the, the flip side is, it, is if you get the opposite, then it can take a whole lifetime to kind of unravel that. And, you know, often I've done events before and, um, you know, kind of people afterwards like an elderly gentleman will come up to me and say you know i've always wanted to write a novel i've, I've got this idea and and then will tell me about the idea that they have that i should write about and and i was just like well that's your idea it's a really good idea why don't you write it and they kind of look at you as if you know you've told them to walk on the moon or something so so yeah i think that's um having that person like you mentioned who tells you no no you are a writer i mean it, it's such a fundamental thing um and it can change your life, those little steps. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, now, um, as you mentioned earlier, Blue Light Yokohama, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correct, <laughs> is your first novel. And, um, correct. And I'm curious about what it was about this story that grabbed you and made you want to pursue telling it. It's a crime novel that happens in a country that you visited, fell in love with, but you've never lived there for long periods of time. I just find that fascinating. Mm. Yeah, well, it was certainly a big challenge. I mean, I've I'd, I'd been um, a bunch of times, and I'd and I'd researched it, and I'd written um, about it before. But you know, as you say, it was all kind of in a capacity of, you know, this is a great uh, restaurant, this is a great museum, you know, this temple is beautiful. It was, it, it was kind of telling stories about Japan, but from a destination guide perspective, which was you know, trying to inspire people to go and visit it. But all of the things were real. All of those things are there. Um, and you could, you know, it's easy to fact check whether, I don't know, a restaurant has, um, I don't know, wheelchair access or something like that. It's sure. either a yes or a no. In terms of writing a novel, um, it, it, well, it, it, it all kicked off because in the year uh, 2000, um, on New Year's Eve, uh, there was a, a real-life case, which is a family called the Miyazawa family, were in their home, and their house was in a park. Um, and basically, a man broke in and stabbed them all to death and then stayed in the house for approximately 10 to 12 hours. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, he ate their food. He went on their computer. He went through their things. He slept there the night. There was kind of this Goldilocks um feel to it and then he walked out the next day in broad daylight wearing the the father's clothes and he was never seen again and so that was yeah in the year 2000 so almost 20 years have passed and um and he to this day is uh, remains free so home invasions and 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 you know multiple homicides don't really happen uh in most places let alone japan so i mean for as a counterpoint i think in 2015 they had one gun-related homicide, one, in a country of 127 million people. So this is obviously not a common occurrence. So when this did happen, um, the, there was outcry. Um, and the Japanese police down the years have put 246,000 uh, police officers on this case, which is kind of like the population of Reno or, <laughs> almost, or, or almost Iceland, um, all of them being police uh, officers and all of them searching for one man but to no avail. So I picked up this case when I first went uh, to Japan, which I think was 2010. 
and I was jet lagged in a in a hotel lobby and I picked up the newspaper and it was a picture of this family and they look absolutely ordinary they just look like a normal family and they're kind of in the photo they were sitting on some stone steps and they're looking to camera and it seems to be a day out in some kind of a park and um, they're looking to camera but nobody's really smiling in it nobody really looks that happy and there are no real traces of affection except that the father is touching the son's shoulder um, with two fingers and so the son was four and the girl I think was eight and then both the parents were in their 40s and I just thought who would break into this family's home on New Year's Eve and stab them all to death. There must be a very good reason for doing this. So I kind of read into it a bit more, and basically the, the police assumed maybe there was an affair going on or maybe somebody owed money or maybe they'd offended somebody, or, and they kind of did their victimology, but they basically couldn't come up with any viable theories, let alone suspects. Um, and then they looked at the suspect and they found that he left something like 12,000 clues behind. I mean, he left his DNA. He bled, he bled everywhere because there was a struggle with the father. He used the toilet. He you know, he didn't bother cleaning up after himself. He slept. He ate there. Um, and they worked out that this is a guy who had traveled. They knew that much because on the shoes he left behind, he had sand grains from the Mojave Desert. So he'd been in America at some point and then come to Japan. They looked at his clothes and they found that he used uh, French aftershave. They looked, they went into the toilet and analyzed um, his DNA and found that he was a vegetarian who ate a lot of spinach. They looked at the knife he used and they found that he had um, bought the knife that morning. It was a long, long, thin sashimi knife. So all of these, so th this was a specific man who, you know, travels, who likes nice aftershave, who... Um, is a vegetarian who, for whatever reason, on New Year's Eve, almost 20 years ago, decided to destroy an entire family. He must have had a reason. They still don't know the reason. And I looked at that article, and there was something about it just freaked me out so much, I thought, I have to know more. So I ended up taking the subway to this house, which has been empty for 20 years, and it's still there today. All the houses around it have been demolished, but this one house is still left there standing in this little kind of green park um, with, a, with a canal that flows by behind it. And I stood outside that house at about, I think it was sort of 5 a.m. or 6 a.m., um, and I just looked at that house, and it kind of, in that moment, became real to me. You know, I knew it was real, but it was only by standing there in the cold looking at this kind of shell of a house where this real-life brutality had taken place, where I kind of felt the family as, as real people. And, it, and people use the word chilling uh, all the time to the point where it's a cliche, but it's as best as word as I can find. I felt chilled in that moment. And, you know, to the point where I was looking around the park thinking, oh, my God, is he here? You know, is he waiting <laughs> in the bushes? But something about the feeling of that, um, story kind of bit into me and never really let go. Um, when I got home, I kind of went through more, or when I got back to the hotel, I, I went through more um, papers, and there was a photograph of a, a policeman on the anniversary of the murders, and uh, every year the police go and they bow in front of the house, kind of in asking uh, for forgiveness for not being able to find this man. And one of the policemen was quite young, and he was on the end of the row of these men bowing, and he looked, um, he, he was crying. And I thought, and policemen where I'm from don't cry, you know. Um, they certainly don't ask for forgiveness. Yeah. And there was something about this guy where he looked so vulnerable, so personally affected by this, where I kind of thought, well, what if I wrote a story about this man or a man like this who was kind of broken and, and vulnerable, who had to solve the murder? So that's kind of where it began. And then four years later, I was back in Japan for my uh, 30th birthday, and I was kind of retracing my old, my old roots when I was travel writing. And um, I happened to be jet-lagged again in another hotel, and I came across uh, the news article again. And this time it was like, you know, 15 years on, you know, family homicide still unsolved. And, um, and in all that time that had passed, I'd kind of been thinking about them. And then I just thought, right, I, I have to write this novel. I have to tell a story based on this. Um, so it wasn't that I set out necessarily to write an, a, a novel about Japan or, or set in Japan um, originally. I always wanted to write, but it, it wasn't going to be about Japan. But there was something about this particular case where I thought, no, I, I do want to do this. And I, and I was intimidated to begin with because I don't speak the language. Um, you know, I've only got, you know, very basic uh, Japanese. Um, 
you know, and it's difficult, you know, even basic stuff, you know, like um, if a policeman is going to arrest somebody um, for the act of homicide, under which article of the penal code would they charge them? So right. finding that, you have to do your research. Well, it's Article 199, you know, and so on and so forth. All of that takes a great deal of time and effort, and I knew from the beginning this is going to be climbing a mountain and I'm going to make a bunch of mistakes. But I think in the end, the, the, the need to, to tell that story was always going to win out. So, yeah, it was very difficult um, to do that. But I also kind of knew that the flip side was that half of the battle is people were going to say, oh, it's in Japan, oh, that's interesting. Um, so w what you lose, you also gain at the same time. So I don't know if that answers your question. Uh, yeah. No, around the houses there. That's really fascinating. And I like how, you know, you became personally not just interested in, but moved by this case. And mm. it wasn't just for you an academic endeavor of, oh, well, this yeah. is an idea, I could use this. But it was, you know, it was this personal connection of saying, this police officer was was crying, was asking for forgiveness. What would it be like to mm. write about a character like that? And um, it just makes me think about the genesis of stories and storytelling and mm. some of the the novels that I've had, you know, I can trace back moment by moment saying, I, I researched this and I discovered mm -hmm. this and that led me to this and that led me mm -hmm. to this. And eventually, you know, the book began to grow. And mm -hmm. um, I always think it's interesting in our stories to, to uh, I think it's interesting to be impacted by reality, but not um, constrained by it when we tell uh, fictional stories when we tell novels, so that right, right. we can be inspired by this event. Mm. But but then, how did you go through? You know, knowing that this was a this was an actual crime, and it was an inspiring mm -hmm. you to tell this story to, to write this novel, but yet not feel constrained that you had to follow specific. Oh, I don't know rules yeah. or how did you draw that line? Yeah, that's an important question. Um, it's one that I've been asked before, you know, how do you take a true life thing and, uh, and tell a story about it? I think in some, in some ways um, all stories kind of at some point begin in reality. All, all, all tragedy at some point has to have happened to somebody in real life for us to then fictionalize it. Um, in, in this particular case, I mean, I think part of the reason why this didn't get published in Japan was the fact that um, this is kind of, um, you know, I'm thinking of maybe the Jean Benet Ramsey case here, where it's kind of notorious here, where where kind of pretty much everybody knows about that. Well, in Japan, this is the Miyazawa family is kind of their version of that. Mm. So I think perhaps writing a fictional novel, um, certainly as a jumping-off point, uh, this real-life case was kind of, I think, too close to the bone uh, over there, maybe, perhaps. Um, I think the, part of the way you deal with it is by, as you say, drawing a line and saying, well, I'm going to be inspired by what's happened, but I'm, and I'm going to take the fact that this happened to a family, but I'm also just going to take it as just that, as, as, as inspiration. And maybe right. inspiration isn't, isn't the right word. I think also you have to um, do it in a respectful way. So in my novel, I don't shy away from brutality, but I don't kind of linger over it. I don't kind of luxuriate in, in the violence itself. Um, I mean, for me personally, violence, the violence itself isn't interesting. Um, it's, it's more why the violence is happening. So I'm all for it being heavy if it's in keeping with um, you know, a, a motivation, I think. And I think in this case, with um, drawing the line with this family, well, at the end of the novel, in the, um, the kind of acknowledgements part, I do um, talk about this family, and I do talk about the fact that it was a doubt from the beginning as to whether or not I wanted to kind of say... I mean, I definitely didn't want to say at the beginning of the novel based on a true story or inspired right. by a true story, because that would feel like I was kind of um, piggybacking off of a real-life tragedy. I think, ultimately... The way, the way I kind of began this was, well, nobody is going to publish this book anyway, so it's not like it's going to matter. And I, <laughs> it, it, I didn't think it was ever going to be a, a, a bridge that I'd, I'd have to cross. Um, but for me, certainly, the, the, as you say, that family, I, you know, I never met them, and I would certainly understand it if their relatives didn't like the fact that I'd written a novel about it. But at the same time, I'd, 
it's it's one where I've always been conscious of what's happened to them and and I say at the end of uh, my acknowledgments I hope that the man who did this may one day find justice or no justice because he is still he is still out there and a kind of a, a small part of me um was glad to kind of bring some semblance of awareness of this horrible case um, to readers who maybe didn't know anything about it or to get to the end of the novel and go, oh, actually, this is based on a real-life thing. Maybe I'm going to Google it. Just so that the person who's done this, um, if he were to ever, I don't know, pass through a Barnes & Noble or, or any other you know, bookshop, pick it up and go, oh, this is about a thing I've done. Like, I don't know. I'm not explaining it very well, but I think it, no, just, I think it, that it, it felt yeah. important to tell it you know, um, at the risk yeah. of, and not wanting to cheapen it, but at the same time respecting what had really happened, but saying that, you know, all novels come out of reality at, at some point. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, the two things that strike me from what you were saying, you know, first is that you felt that this was important to to write about and that you weren't trying to emulate exactly the same thing. But one of my mm -hmm. stories I wrote about... Um, predators who mm -hmm. target children online, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, sexual predators who do. Mm -hmm. And I felt like it was my most important um, novel ever. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, some people would say, oh, I, I started reading your book and I couldn't finish it or I couldn't read it. Yeah. Uh, the writing was good, but they didn't like the topic. They didn't like that this is right. our world. But right. when I wrote it, I didn't, you know, take one specific event and say, this is, but instead telling the truth of what mm -hmm. happens in our world, mm -hmm. and um, I kind of feel like that's our job as, as you know, as as novelists, is not mm -hmm. necessarily to tell the truth about an event, but the mm -hmm. truth about human nature. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, and so um, also I like what you said about violence serving a purpose that it isn't there just to be gratuitous or mm -hmm. to shock and just create. Mm -hmm you know, this visceral thing, but to render um, anything true about human nature, you can't do so, you know, mm -hmm. in a broad sense without the paradox of both good and evil, of right. how we, you know, we do both. And and um, and drawing that out in our stories is, is I think, is, is, part of the, is part of the gig if we're going to tell, mm -hmm. you know, stories that um, explore in an honest way human nature. Absolutely. No, absolutely. It is part of the gig. And I think, you know, what you said about uh, human nature, I, I think it was Chekhov who said, uh, as a novelist, it is not our job to answer questions. It is our job to ask them in the first place. Um, and I think there's something to that, you know, like you, you mentioned about that topic in which you're writing about predators. That it's such a crucial topic. Um, I think people are terrified in the sense that all of a sudden there's an awareness of this back door into your own home, you know, where this kind of Pied Piper can trick a child out of your own home um, and trick them into, you know, a Starbucks or wherever it may be. It, that kind of awareness that those people are there, you know, if a guy picks up a book because he's getting on a five-hour flight, maybe he doesn't want to read about those things because he right. already has enough reality. But at the same time, if you do pick up a novel about <clears throat> crime, if you do pick up a novel about a dead body or whatever it might be, I think it would be disingenuous to then on chapter three say, actually, I cash out because this is a bit too heavy for me. I don't know. I just think <laughs> you, you, should, you should, or at least the publisher should make it clear on the jacket what it is that the reader is about to go into. Um, because otherwise, like you say, there's going to be a dissatisfaction um, on the part of the reader. I think in terms of... The, the violence itself. I don't know. The the thing that, our, our, as as a kind of society, some of the earliest storytelling um, from which many stories uh, kind of come out of is from the Bible. And I think if you pick up any Bible or, or even any holy text from any other religion, most of them are suffused with uh, violence um, of all kinds and shapes and sizes. You know, I, so I think from our very beginnings, um, as 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 a species, it, it's linked with our survival. Um, so it would be difficult to now say, well, we're in 2018, so you know we don't need to talk about violence anymore. I think so long as there are people, there will be violence. And I think by exploring why rather than the what, that to me is interesting. You know, Jack the Ripper as a person um, and what he did 
it, it's it's less the the Jack the Ripper and more the what drives Jack the Ripper to do that for this amount of time in this one particular place, and then disappear. The, the why is certainly far more uh, of a driver to me personally, and I think to, to 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 many people. But I think once you get caught up on the he has this particular method, this particularly gruesome method where he leaves his signature behind and his calling card is this, you know, particularly gory thing that he does. If if that's the, the tension, then um, I tend to lose interest far, far sooner than if the attention is on finding out why he's doing the calling card thing in the first place. But, uh, yeah. Well, the time has, has passed quickly. I've really enjoyed your insights and just your stories. And I was curious if you had any parting thoughts for anyone who might be an aspiring author or novelist and, and um, anything maybe that you picked up in your journey of writing your first book that might encourage them. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, um, first of all, yeah, no, it's been an absolute pleasure. So so thank you for for having me. And and I think as well, certainly um, for, for anybody who's thinking about uh, doing it or, or who has aspirations, I think um, as a simple message, I don't think there are any um, right or wrong answers. The, the publishers themselves are always looking, always looking for the next thing. They will never not be. Um, and they don't know what will do well and what won't do well. You know, it's like any uh, stock trader. They, they would love to know, but, but they're simply not sure. It's down to the, the market. So I think within that, yes, listen to the advice of teachers and, and, and um, those around you. Yes, kind of listen to the, the maxims that we always hear, you know, show, don't tell, and so on and so forth. But there is always an exception to the rule. Um, and to kind of try and balance the, the conventional wisdom that all aspiring writers will be given with trusting their own judgment and i think whether it's hey i want to write a, a romance you know maybe don't have the car chase scene in the first you know <laughs> few pages maybe just have the story that you want to tell and i think if it if you're telling the story that you want to tell rather than well hey the girl on the train did really well so i'm going to tell the story you know that's the girl on the bus or whatever um i don't think that's necessarily going to work out don't try and um ape something that's done well um, commercially because this isn't necessarily a, uh, an industry you want to enter for the money anyway. It should, you should try and get into it for the love. So, yeah, kind of a headline message, um, listen to the advice of others, but also listen to yourself. There are no right or wrong answers. I think my um, teacher when I was about 11 years old um, kind of gave me the best advice that I'd ever heard, which is... It, I don't care if it's sci-fi. I don't care if it's a thriller. I don't care what it is. Um, I just have to care. Hmm. And I think if you can make the reader care, then you're onto a winner. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I would defer to Miss Kenny uh, and her <laughs> advice from Year 7. <laughs> no, that's excellent. So we want to encourage all of our listeners to check out your, your book, Blue Light Yokohama, and um, to connect with you online and mm -hmm. I'm curious if uh, you have a website you'd like to direct us to or how's the best way that people can keep an eye out for your newest books um, or you know to be in touch with you mm -hmm. well so I'm on Twitter um, it's just uh, Nick Obregon which is NIC and then my surname um, the same goes and then on Instagram it's just Obregon books and my website is obregonbooks.com um, in terms of future books, um, the sequel to Blue Light Yokohama comes out in the U.S. in uh, December. It's called Sins as Scarlet, and um, it's the same. It's a it's a standalone novel, but it but it but it yeah follows on from the events of the first book. And now our detective, who is Japanese but has grown up between California and uh, Japan, five years on from the first novel, he's moved back to California, and now he's working as a uh, as a private eye. Um, and so the second novel is kind of the same guy, but in a completely different in a completely different world. And then the third one will be out in 2019, and I have a contract for a fourth one, uh, which is out in the year 2020, which is a distant future. But yeah, so I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, and that's my my website. That is fantastic! Congratulations on the new book. Thank you very much. The new contracts. That's that's fabulous. And so. We want people to follow you, and we want them to check out your book. And if you want information about my conferences and um, my books, you can go to stephenjames.net. 
Um, also, I want to thank Suspense Radio, and be sure to subscribe to this podcast and more of theirs through Suspense Radio. For more information about our other guests and to check out other broadcasts, click to thestoryblender.com. And folks, always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.